This is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast, hosted by Roman Prokopchuk, bringing you all things digital marketing, tech, business, and motivation. What's stopping you from becoming relentless in all aspects of life? Are you ready to become a digital savage? Let's get into today's episode. Hey everyone, this is Roman Prokopchuk and this is the Digital Savage Experience Podcast. Today I have with me Kelly Mendenhall. Kelly is a Spoonie, author, podcast co-host, entrepreneur, and self-care advocate living with chronic pain and invisible illness. Her mission is to show the world that a medical diagnosis does not have to mark the end of one's story. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be with you. My pleasure. So tell me a little bit about your journey. How did you get to where you are today? I loved how you phrased it, like, what is your origin story? (laughs) Uh, One of my tattoo artists actually said, because my tattoos tell my life story, he said, Kelly's a superhero and I'm proud to get to write her origin story. So uh, I got here accidentally. I had a master's in public administration and planned on spending my life working in the nonprofit sector and trying to be the change I wanted to see in the world. And I suddenly became medically disabled and like immobile for 10 months um, in 2017, in June of 2017. Six months prior to that, I had started what I thought was gonna be a side hustle. I started a network marketing business And I was kind of like sitting on the couch during that first week of medical leave and realized, you know, thinking about all the what ifs and the what might come. And I kind of realized like, this is why you had a plan B. This is why you got a quote unquote side hustle was in case things like this happened. I just didn't expect it to happen so soon. Um, So I became medically disabled Six weeks of medical leave turned into eight weeks, 12 weeks, and 16 weeks, and eventually I lost my job. And I decided early on in my journey as a woman facing chronic pain and chronic mental health issues, I I decided that I was going to share my story as openly and authentically as possible so that other people wouldn't feel as alone and alienated as I felt. And that's kind of how my Nerdzilla Lives blog started. And that's how I came to decide to write my book and start a podcast. That's awesome. Um, So what motivates you to succeed? Oh man, I've always been an overachiever naturally. (laughs) Um, I've also always been a fierce advocate. And for me, in the different roles that I play right now, I consider myself an advocate, not only for myself, but for other patients and especially women, because there is a very, um, there is a very recognized and documented medical bias against women experiencing or reporting chronic pain and also for women of color for any type of illness really. Um, So I consider myself an advocate for myself and for other people. And so that is, and I've always kind of been an advocate, which is how I ended up in nonprofit. 
So that drives me to want to do well with my business, with my book, with my blog, with the podcast, all of those different things, because I want to make as big of an impact as I possibly can, even if it's from the couch. No, I agree. I think advocacy is very important and oftentimes the situation that you are in. So like myself and my wife are foster parents. So basically going through that journey and seeing that there's 400,000 kids kind of in the cause foster care process. And a lot of the time, uh, you know, the system's flawed. So basically being an advocate and uh, speaking on their behalf when uh, they can't. It's funny that you mentioned that because I actually, the last job I had out in the real world was foster parent recruiter and trainer. And so I worked in a therapeutic foster care program and had to um, do the seven weeks of training with foster parents and then go through the whole process of the home study and decide whether or not they were approved to be therapeutic foster parents. And it is so important for foster parents to be advocates for those kids. And I kind of experienced that whole like people making decisions about me without me. That was something that I used to talk about a lot with foster parents and I would tell them how frustrating that was for the kids and you know everything that they were going through. But I experienced it myself personally for the first time when I had my social security disability hearing on uh, my birthday, which was August 8th. And it was sitting in a room full of people who were speaking in legal jargon and looking at me and talking about me and talking about my future without asking me anything. (laughs) And it was really, it it was really disturbing. It was very triggering and it just, kind of the my response to it was so visceral I started crying in the courtroom and and it reminded me like I can help other people by by warning them what this is going to feel like or what this is going to look like and what this process is like to go through so again being open and authentic and sharing my journey can help other people better prepare for this experience that I was not prepared for. Yeah, I agree. I think, uh, yeah, like a lot of things are out of your control when you deal with the state. And a lot of stuff is very bureaucratic. Obviously, we've had kids, all of our kids we've had in our home have been under six years old. So obviously they don't know what's in the best or best interest of themselves right. um, or the situations they should be, they should be in. And in New Jersey, like other states, it's reunification over anything, regardless if the situation is better. As long as the bio guardian is showing some signs of improvement, it may not be much. They uh, end up being preferred over the, um, you know, foster situation. Yes, absolutely. It is like that in most states. And it's like that here in Tennessee. And that can be hard. I can't, I I can understand a little bit from watching what some of the foster parents went through that I worked with. But again, you can only understand so much as you experience for yourself. And it's gotta be hard. And I know it is hard on a lot of foster parents when they see the dangerous situation that the kids can be in and they're 
you know, they feel like they don't have any control ultimately over whether or not the kids are put back in that situation. So I commend you and your wife for being foster parents because it's not easy work. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's been tough when, you know, the first placement we had one day after being licensed, we've had for a year and we thought it was going to go the adoption route, but they got reunified two months ago. So it's been kind of rough, but. Wow. Yeah, that's, that's, that would be really hard. But I mean, uh, there's a lot of kids out there and we've had um, three uh, short term placements after that, after we were kind of getting, you know, our mind and uh, our emotions right to kind of get into state to take longer term placements so we've still kind of been helping in that situation as well yeah that's great because sometimes kids just need a safe place to stay for a few days or overnight until they can be placed as a family member too yep i agree so what's one thing that you've considered in the past a weakness that you've turned and utilized and turned it into a strength? <laughs> uh, my loud mouth and tenacity was always presented to me as though it was a weakness and it was a reason why I had trouble getting along in traditional office environments and traditional um, work situations. I am one of those people that has an innate sense of right and wrong, and I have a very strong sense of ethics, and I'm very empathic, and so I would run into working in nonprofit, people kind of like towing the line, or like just barely over the line of the right thing to do, like maybe maybe what they weren't doing it wasn't illegal, but it was unethical or it was against the standards of the nonprofit sector or the social work sector. I couldn't ignore that even when it was a boss. So some, so I've always, I've always been, uh, it's always been presented to me as though it's a flaw. And even at my last job out in the world, my first supervisor there, he would tell me, because I'm a transplant from Michigan living in Tennessee and he would say things like you're letting your Yankee show a little bit too much and you need to like pull it back and I'm just a person who speaks very straightforward and I don't beat around the bush I'm efficient in communication I try to be as diplomatic and respectful as possible but I don't molly coddle people especially not adults and that, that always presented difficulties in workplace environments, especially in the dynamics between supervisors and me. And however, in the last two years, if I didn't have that tenacity and that natural innate sense of right and wrong, and if I didn't have the confidence that I do, I would not have kept fighting and fighting and fighting. So when this journey started i didn't have a diagnosis when i when i first stopped being able to walk and i was suddenly in all this di different pain there was no clear diagnosis and it has taken from june 2017 to june of this year to get a clear diagnosis and find doctors who believed me and if i hadn't had that like natural activist super tenacious willing to piss people off um, for what's right. If I hadn't had all those qualities, I would not have found my doctors 
and I would not have found my diagnoses. And, you know, it's, it's hard because especially as a woman, there really is a bias against women. We're, the word uterus is, the root word of uterus is utera, which is Greek for hysteria. And so literally from the beginning of time, women have been considered hysterical. And that bias has prevailed in modern medicine, even up until now. And so I was really having to fight hard to get the answers to what was wrong with me. And I've had two surgeries so far, and it looks like I need a third surgery that might be happening as soon as October. And I could have paralyzed myself if I hadn't kept pushing. So I would say that, I would say, that those qualities help with my business. It helps me to not give up on network marketing. A lot of people, if they don't see, like, you know, if they're not, they love to flaunt the instant millionaire stories. So a lot of people come into network marketing and if they don't have that within six months or a year, they give up. But my tenacity keeps me going. And it helps me with writing my book and being open about things that I hadn't even told some of my best friends, like the sexual assaults that I experienced and the domestic violence that I experienced and the abortion at age 28 and all these different things. I came out about in my book and on the podcast, which if I wasn't who I am as a person naturally, I don't think I would have been able to do all of those things. No, I agree. And I think it's important to um, have a moral compass and stand up for yourself and you know even if it's you know people combating it or being kind of uh not complying in a way to to get the things that you need especially like with me um with with the foster kids a lot of like medical procedures and stuff that doctors said one doctor can do or, or you know the the division of child services didn't necessarily like move us fast enough and we would have to go and kind of kick down the door if you will and also sharing your story like you said you're writing your book because there are a lot of people you know in similar situations and a lot of people are afraid to speak about what they've been through but speaking about it regardless you know there can be one person you affect to you know show that they're not alone and similar people have been in similar situations and are able to cope and thrive and and get past it yeah and that i already know that my first book is doing doing that excuse me because i do talk about all those those things that i just listed and my next book project is actually the working title is is called medical gaslighting tales of women surviving the bias and it's just another i mean i talk about my medical journey in my first book the last two chapters because it's part of my story and it's part of the origin and where I come from and and my tattoos the the book is called skin in the game the stories my tattoos tell because my my tattoos are all autobiographical in some way they all represent a person an event um or time in my life or or a situation and so I wrote my I wrote my book by telling the stories behind my tattoos. So it's, it's, it's different than a lot of memoirs because it's not chronological. I kind of tell the stories attached to the tattoos in the order in which I got the tattoos. 
Um, so it, it really bends the genre. And I've had a lot of women contact me and thank me for talking about all the different things. And, and my podcast co-host and I, Debbie Joe, we talk a lot about sexual trauma and surviving sexual trauma and living with things like PTSD or disordered eating and other mental health disorders. And we have women reach out all the time thanking us for doing that. But I wanted to take it a step farther and that's why I'm choosing to focus entirely on women and the medical system with my second book because it's talked about but it's not it's not widely understood or known the the bias the medical bias against women and it's been starting to get some attention in the last couple of years because like uh Jeannie Gaffigan Jim Gaffigan's wife she almost died of a brain tumor because doctors didn't believe her about her symptoms and they kept blowing her off and it turned out she had a brain tumor she almost died and so they did an expose uh about overcoming the bias and there was I, I can't remember right now who it was but there's a an actress who has MS who did a recent interview that in 2019 on 2020 I think about her experiences and but we need more people that aren't celebrities talking about it we need people who who don't have buckets of money laying around to afford the best doctors and the best treatments people who are just regular people we need to have we need to have our stories out there so that people can I- identify with us and not feel so alienated and isolated I agree. I think uh, everybody has a platform. I think uh, the podcast platform, you can reach anyone. You know, there's no kind of uh, walls or gates preventing you to tell your message or the way you want to tell it. And I think it's important to tell a story of, you know, people in your neighborhood, people that, you know, you're friends with, family that you may not know are going through something similar because oftentimes that's more relatable when somebody's coming from a similar situation, similar way of life, whether like you said, it's a celebrity that you may not be able to connect as much, even though it's the same experience, it's kind of, you know, a different uh, look at it. Yeah, like I, I remember, like I never listened to Lady Gaga, not because I had any beef with Lady Gaga or anything, She's incredibly talented, but it just was, she wasn't my kind of music when she came out. And so I just never, like, I knew about her, I knew of her, but I never really listened to her. And then one of my friends who is also a Spoonie um, and lives with chronic illness was like, you really have to watch the Lady Gaga documentary on Netflix. And so I did. And it, it not only made me respect her more as a person and a human being, but it also made me want to listen to her music and and learn more about her. But the the key thing that made her relatable to me and what was so powerful to me is that there's this part in her documentary. She's since been diagnosed with fibromyalgia and that is an autoimmune disease where basically your body is attacking itself and it's causing pain. 
But at the time, she didn't have a diagnosis. They weren't sure what was going on. She'd had an injury and it was causing some pain and then things just kept getting worse. But there's a scene in the documentary where she's laying on a couch and she's sobbing from the pain, which is something that has happened to me regularly and I can relate to. But she's got like four staff members around her. She's got people laying ice packs on her body. She has people massaging her, doing all these different things to try and help with the pain. And she looks at the camera and she says, what, I can't direct quotes because I can't remember things that well. But it was something along the lines of, I feel so bad for the people who are experiencing things like like I'm experiencing and they don't have the money and resources that I have to get treatment like this. And the fact that she recognized her privilege in that way and that, like I burst into tears because I was like, oh, she gets it, you know? And I think it's rare that we can feel connected uh, to people who are in positions like she's in. I mean, she has access to all the resources in the world. But, but she called her out her own privilege and, and talked about how other people might be experiencing it. And that was really powerful for me. So I'm hoping that sharing stories of myself and other women in this next book project will help other people have those moments of like, oh, they really get what I'm going through. Did I lose you? The oh. uh, audio cut out at... Uh... To, to get people to understand what I'm uh, going through. Oh, okay, sorry. Um, so hopefully this project can help other people to feel like myself and others understand what they're going through and you know that we have empathy for them, especially because medical gaslighting and doctors making you feel like you're crazy is incredibly pervasive especially when it comes to chronic pain and they even made me question my own sanity and my own knowledge of my body and myself and so I hear I see women all the time in support groups who are saying am I crazy you know like my doctor just told me that it's all in my head and I'm always having to like I immediately will respond with a link to an article or a legal or clinical study and I'm like you're not crazy this is something that happens to all women no, that's awesome and having kind of that platform and you sharing it in uh in different means really kind of uh enables you to reach kind of different audiences and you know people that listen to podcasts people that read online people that read you know digital and hard copy possibly books so I think it's important spreading whatever, you know, message you have in, in any way you have to spread it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think the, the, the tattoo point you made, I think there's a lot of obviously still like stigmas and misconceptions about tattoos where like I know my wife has a few, I personally don't have any, but I know in terms of healing and a lot of healing processes, you know, tattoos are used to kind of, you know, get through it or document it and have that kind of um, memory in that sense. Yeah, my tattoos serve a lot of purposes for me. And 
One of them is closure. I have a lot of tattoos that are memorial pieces. Sometimes it just helps me process or put something away, some experience that I've been carrying with me. Um, or it symbolizes an important person in my life or an important significant event. And it's physically cathartic for me, even though tattoos are generally painful. You burn a lot of adrenaline when you're having one and so for me as a person who lives with complex PTSD and has a lot of anxiety I can burn so much anxiety off like just in a couple hours of of being you know in a tattoo chair or whatever uh, I can burn off six months worth of extra energy it feels like so and I think I have a lot of visible tattoos um, I think that impacted how a lot of doctors treated me. And so I started to try and trick them. Uh, <laughs> I, I have, I'm six feet tall and have two, one full sleeve on my right arm. And then my left arm is, is a lot of it is covered. It's not fully full yet. Uh, and I have a chest plate that goes from shoulder to shoulder. And in the South, if I wear a tank top or a t-shirt, I mean, you're going to see a lot of my tattoos, um, especially a tank top. But, and so I could, I, I could tell that it was impacting how some doctors and nurses and, and different people were communicating with me and receiving me and treating me. So I started to take uh, hand stitching projects. I make these Christmas stockings for my nieces and nephews. It's a tradition I picked up from my great-grandmother. She made them for all of us when we were kids. I started making them for all of my nieces and nephews. And I'll literally take my stitching projects, these Christmas stockings with me to doctor's appointments when it's a new appointment or somebody I'm seeing for the first time. And I'll sit in the lobby and stitch and I'll watch people watching me and you can kind of see the wheels turning where they're looking at me and kind of thinking like, well, she looks like a criminal or something. <laughs> she looks like, like, like whatever stereotype they have attached to tattoos, but she's doing this craft that my grandmother used to do. And it it sounds silly but it really does change the perception people have of me especially when I'm meeting them for the first time and it ends up becoming a conversation opener that makes me more human to whatever medical professional I'm about to see than if I just walk in as myself with nothing in my hand. That's cool it's kind of diffusing the, the stigma in a way. Yeah exactly it really and and it, like I said, it sounds silly, but it really works. And you can really see like the gears in their head turning, you know, and, and it helps, it helps break down that doctor patient barrier and make me a little bit more human. And it gets to the point where it's like, whenever I'm at the doctor's office, they're like, Hey, how's the last stock? Are you still working on that stocking? How's it going? And they want to see pictures of it and stuff. So it, it has helped me make more human connections with some of my care professionals. It's awesome. So I really appreciate you coming on. Can you uh, leave some advice for the audience, uh, either personal or professional? 
Yeah, I would say don't be afraid to chase the dreams that you've had since you were your five-year-old self. I got stuck in survival mode for so long as an adult and after college and grad school that I lost track of who I was deep down in my heart and in, in my dreams. And it wasn't until I was, I was stuck in survival mode, I was physically and psychologically killing myself working in the nonprofit sector because you're often working the job of two and three people and getting paid for the job of half of a person. And it's really difficult. There's a lot of secondary trauma and you're always stressed about money and all these different things. And so I got stuck in survival mode for so long that I was ignoring what I think my real purpose was in life, which is to be an advocate, to be a writer and a public figure who can speak to people on perseverance and and surviving and it wasn't until god and the universe literally struck me down and were like all right heifer you can't move now what and i had to reinvent myself and that is when i reconnected with my true self and my true dreams and that's when little eight-year-old kelly who begged for a typewriter for her birthday and started writing stories, that's when she came back to surface and I started writing again. So don't get so lost in survival mode or should yourself to death, as my therapist would say, uh, that you lose track of who you really wanna be and who you're capable of being. And that applies to professional life, create like artistic life, everything. No, that's awesome. So how can the audience find you or learn more about you and some of the things you may have going on? Uh, I have a website. It is nerdzillakelly.com. I am on Facebook as Nerdzilla Kelly. I'm on Twitter and Instagram as Nerdzilla Kelly. And Nerdzilla is spelled like you would imagine. It's Godzilla, but Nerdzilla. And um, I have a blog called Nerdzilla Lives. And I, uh, you can, you can find me if you are interested in finding my book, you can find it through my website or you can just type in my name, Kelly Mendenhall into Amazon or Barnes and Noble and, um, or Apple books. And I'm in all of those places. My book is in all of those. Thank you again for stopping by. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast has been brought to you by Nova Zora Digital. Find out how Nova Zora Digital can help your company grow online. Learn more at NovaZoraDigital.com. Until next time, all you digital savages.